You're listening to Phenomenology on the One Step Closer to Madness Network. I can remember hearing straining gasps in place of the words I was attempting to scream. The skin around my wrists was actually indented as if somebody or something were physically grabbing me. One violent pull completely lifted me from the sitting position, entirely flipping my body. On December 14, 1987, I had my first paranormal encounter. That night is so clear to me, I can actually recall those events more accurately than I can something that happened only a few months ago. That night marked the beginning of my journey into the realm of the supernatural. Ten years later, I would embark on a quest to find the answers to not only what happened to me as a child, but to everything within the unknown. Now, I share over 20 years of incredible paranormal experiences with you. This is Phenomenology. On the debut episode of the Phenomenology Paranormal Podcast, the ghost made me do it. Taking a ghost to court and using a haunting as your defense in a murder case. Will it work? Find out on this episode of Phenomenology. Hello my friends and welcome to the debut episode of the Phenomenology Paranormal Podcast. Right here, and only here, on the One Step Closer to Madness Network. I am your host, author, and phenomenologist, Stephen Lancaster. And what the hell is a phenomenologist? Well, that's a more professional and better way of saying paranormal investigator. I'm back with this brand new podcast, guys, and it's packed, of course, with nothing but the best in supernatural talk. My friends, my colleagues, they've been after me for years to return to the internet airwaves, whether it be on a radio show or a podcast. And, you know, for me, the timing wasn't right. Uh, I'm very busy with writing books and, and here and there doing some TV spots. And I want to be consistent about it. But now is the time. Um, this brand new network just launched one step closer to madness. And uh, I talked with the owner and uh, it was like, yeah, now's the time to, to bring a show back. And now I'm ready to fill your head with a little bit of what is inside of mine. And that, my friends, is truly a scary thought. But tonight, I am posing the question, can you use a ghost as your defense in court? That's right, my friends. Did the ghost really make you do it? Is it wise to use something that is yet to be proven as your defense? Now, some might argue that this is no different than swearing on the Bible before your testimony. You see it in court every day. It's used in court every day. But is the Bible and religion not the greatest paranormal claim to ever exist? It is used in court every day. But will that help you get out of your paranormal pickle? I'm here to tell you, I highly doubt it. But before we jump right in, let me give you a few minutes here to catch everybody up on the hows and whys of my new podcast. There's probably some first-time listeners out there, and there's probably some old listeners that are like, hey, Lancaster's back to uh, the airwaves, and I forget who Lancaster is. For those of you who do not know me, I've been involved in the field of paranormal research since 1997. That's right, my friends, I started in this line of work far before those wonderful, wonderful paranormal programs graced its disgrace across all of our televisions. Now, in that 20 years' time, in that 20 years time, I've conducted in the field of paranormal research, investigative work for politicians, military facilities, the Board of Education, museums, commercial locations, businesses, television, civilian properties. And now I'm here with this brand new show, Phenomenology, to share 20 years of incredible paranormal experiences with you. And I've been a part of that television circus that I make fun of all the time. I've appeared on A&E Biographies, My Ghost Story, twice. And more recently, this past year, uh, this past July, I was on the Travel Channel's A Haunting. And in between all of that, I've vented my opinion on dozens of television news broadcasts. I've been quite the mouth in the paranormal field across hundreds of radio shows and podcasts. 
But I kind of went quiet there for a while. I got busy with the books. And uh, those take up a lot of time. Um, but I'm here. I guess in order to beat the system, you have to join it. We want to sit here and complain about how badly represented the paranormal field is because of television. You know, maybe it just needs more of the good people on it. Over the past 10 years, I've published four novels chronicling my work in the paranormal field, and I've got two more coming out next year in 2020. Years ago, I was the host of the Shadow Walker radio show. That's probably where you remember me from. That was a fairly big uh, paranormal radio show before the whole thing blew up and everybody had a paranormal radio show. And a few years after that, I went international and did a, a show called International Paranormal Radio. Um, with some folks across the pond and uh, it lasted about a season it was okay it was just a a lot of trying to get everybody together at once um, it was more more work than what it was worth but now in 2019 I bring you my latest in paranormal talk with this show phenomenology and I'm here to stay for a while guys I've got a 24 episode season planned out and the whole purpose of this show phenomenology is to make you think and I'm not going to say make you think outside of the box. I'm I'm here to make you think of things you normally wouldn't think about. You know, quit taking things for face value. You know, you hear these stories all the time. You see this stuff on TV all the time. But are you thinking beyond what's being told to you? And And that's where I'm at now. And that's what this show is about. Phenomenology. So that's enough about that. Tonight, we are going to make you think. Did the ghost make you do it? That may sound silly at first, you know, because, you know, when we were younger, the dog was always to blame for that missing homework. But what if a ghost was the cause? Can you prove that? You may legitimately be right. You know, maybe you were possessed. You know, maybe the ghost is the one that burned the house down and you got the blame for it. But how do you prove that? There are many, many instances throughout history where there was certainly an attempt to use the supernatural to keep your butt out of prison. Some of those cases are very familiar. They went off to become books, popular films, household names. Some of those cases simply went unnoticed by the media. It's just the right place at the right time and who's pushing the story, that kind of thing. To start this out, I will bring up one of the more infamous criminal cases involving ghosts, or in this case, demons, possession. This case is better known commercially as Amityville. Everybody's heard of Amityville, from the book to the movies. I mean, they're still making movies about this thing. We have all heard the story of the evil that supposedly resides at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. We all know that in November of 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his entire family inside the home and then blamed demonic and evil forces for his actions. Following that, in 1975, George and Kathy Lutz moved into the home, and they also claimed the place was haunted. The now infamous murder and crime scene. A new family's in there. They're going to roll with it. They're also saying it's haunted. And their story, the Lutz family, became the motivation and driving force for the now infamous book, The Amityville Horror. That's the book that started it all, that pretty much was saying, this is true, this is real, the place was haunted. The story of Amityville became a best-selling book and landed in a string of horror movies that, like I said earlier, are still being made today concerning the allegedly demonic house. But whatever happened to Ronald DeFeo Jr.? Did the demons of the house prevent him from going to prison? Was he able to use that? Okay, did the ghost really make him do it, or in this case, the demons? How did that work out for him in court? And that's what we're here to talk about amongst a few other cases that you've probably never heard of. But I'm afraid not, my friends, that did not work out for Ronald DeFeo Jr. His wild claims about an evil presence forcing him to kill his family did not make any headway in the court of law. In fact, he was, he was quite mocked about it because the guy, that, that wasn't his initial claim. This guy wanted out of a murder sentence any way you slice it, and he was going to come up with anything. Now, maybe if he would have came out and said, uh, yes, the place is haunted, the house is haunted, uh, the ghosts made me do it, if he would have came out with that first, but he didn't. And the very first thing he claimed was that the mob killed his family, that it was a mob hit, not a ghost, not a demon, men of flesh and blood. He actually claimed that the mob came to his house for whatever reason, 
and killed his entire family. Okay, now unfortunately for Mr. DeFeo, his alibi was quickly ruled out by detectives. So what was DeFeo to do? Now that he had, he had to take the blame for killing his own family in cold blood. I mean, after all, he killed them all in their sleep, and a court ruling was certainly not going to be laid on him about this. So, him using the mob as an excuse, that, that's over. Okay, so he got with his attorney. Ronald DeFeo and his attorney created a story about the house being possessed. Okay, it, it didn't actually happen. Him and his attorney concocted this story. They claimed that voices spoke to Ronald, telling him to kill his family. Knowing that Mr. DeFeo was a drug addict and an alcoholic, this story didn't hold up in court either. Nobody believed him, especially after lying the first time about the murders being a result of a mob hit. So the guy had no credibility whatsoever. But, as I alluded to earlier, the books and the movies don't tell you those things. They want you to believe a certain way. They want to market this and they want to profit from it. Long story short, a jury convicted Mr. DeFeo on six counts of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to not one, but six concurrent sentences of 25 years to life. Although his claims concerning ghosts haunting the house in Amityville were shot down and blown off as a desperation on behalf of a drug addict, the Lutz family, who moved in a year prior, decided to profit from his story by moving into the home and telling the world the house was really haunted. This, of course, had zero effect on William DeFeo's trial, his sentencing. Nobody believed the Lutz family. They, they were, a lot of people screamed hoax immediately. Um, however, as the real history has taught us, the house in Amityville is not actually haunted, and the origins of the demon house were nothing more than a desperate endeavor of a murderer attempting to get away with his crimes. Remember, my friends, he said the mob did it first. When that didn't hold up, he went with the ghost, made him do it. Now, Amy DeVille is a household name as we sit here in the 21st century. Although the haunted history was nothing more than a lie. Books, movies, they, they continue to bank off of Mr. DeFeo and the Lutz family's ghost stories. But was the crime committed in Amityville, New York the first time an individual attempted to blame a ghost for their actions in the court of law? Okay, a lot of people are probably going to argue this thing about Amityville, but do your own research. Read up on it. Much of what was said, there is a lot behind the scenes. It was a hoax. This was a drug addict, an alcoholic, trying to get out of murder. Okay, for God's sake, he said the mob did it first. So then he went with something that now maybe to his defense, he was smart about it. Him and his attorney decided we will blame ghosts and demons because that can't be proven. So they can't say you are lying. Maybe that's what they were thinking, but it certainly did not work out. But was Amityville, as popular as it is, as well known as it is, was that the first time an individual attempted to blame a ghost for their actions in the court of law? For most people out there, for the average person that follows this stuff, or maybe doesn't even follow the paranormal, they think of Amityville to be the most mainstream case that attempted to do this, that attempted to blame a ghost for a person's actions. But surprisingly, you know, that happened in 1974. Surprisingly, the very first case documented in which a ghost was being to blame for a person's actions dates all the way back to 1804. Yes, my friends, today you're going to learn about the very first murder case that attempted to use a ghost in trial. And this is an interesting case, too, because and there's a lot to talk about because it makes you think, and that's why we're here. But before we do that, guys, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Hammersmith ghost murder case of 1804. This was virgin territory for the courtroom, my friends. Never before had a ghost been used as a defense. But in 1804 it happened, and that changed our legal system as we know it to this day. So stick around, guys. You're listening to me, Stephen Lancaster, on Phenomenology on the One Step Closer to Madness Network. I'll be right back. 
Hey, my friends, be sure to like the One Step Closer to Madness Network with my show, Phenomenology, at facebook.com slash one step closer to madness. That's facebook.com slash one step closer to madness. Do you have a topic or a question that you would like to hear on a future episode of Phenomenology? Hit me up at facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. That's facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. Give me your suggestions. Give me your comments. Give me your questions. You may just hear it on a future episode of Phenomenology. Facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. We now return to Phenomenology with author and phenomenologist Stephen Lancaster right here on the One Step Closer to Madness Network. All right, my friends, we are back. This is Phenomenology. I'm Stephen, and we're about to start talking about the Hammersmith Ghost murder case. It was the first of its kind. Like I alluded to earlier before the break, this was virgin territory for the courtroom, especially in the 1800s. But what happened in 1804 that caused our entire legal system to change its views over 180 years later? The Hammersmith ghost murder case raised the question, could a person be held liable for their actions if they were the consequence of mistaken belief? Now that is a very interesting question and point to be made. What that question is basically asking is, could you be to blame for doing something as a result of believing something else to be true and that something else just happened to be what influenced you? I'm going to say all that again. Could a person be held liable for their actions if they were the consequence of mistaken belief? Take Santa Claus for instance. We blame Santa Claus for placing presents underneath the tree. Although we as adults know the truth behind the mythology, most children believe in him. When in reality it is us, the adults, placing the gifts underneath the tree. We then tell our children that Santa Claus did it. Now that is a more sugar-coated comparison to blaming a ghost for murder, but it gets the point across. But what is the Hammersmith ghost? Hammersmith is a small area of London. During that time and topic at hand, many people believed the area to be haunted by a malicious spirit. In other words, the townspeople believed Hammersmith to be haunted by a ghost. This was almost everybody in the town, not just one person. Almost everybody in the town believed Hammersmith, a little part of London, was haunted by a malicious spirit. The ghost was believed to be a spirit of a suicide victim. Okay, so that adds a little bit more to the mythos of the Hammersmith ghost. The people of the town believed in the ghost so much that they actually formed literal armed patrols to scout and monitor the town after dark in search of the alleged ghost. Some of the people of Hammersmith even claimed to have been attacked by the ghost. As you can imagine, the entire town had their guard up I mean, they created a a militia to go out and try to uh, catch or kill this ghost. This was taken very seriously, in other words, uh, serious enough for the town to have armed individuals on the hunt for it. You know, I guess that kind of gives a whole new meaning to the label ghost hunters. These guys actually were physically hunting the ghost. I guess in a way, the armed patrols of Hammersmith were the original ghost hunters. Only their mission wasn't to document and report what they had seen. Their mission was to kill it on sight. That mentality right there should tell you where the heads of most people were in the early 1800s. They not only believed that a ghost was haunting their town, they also believed they could kill it with firearms. Okay, you can kill a ghost with firearms is what they believed uh, in Hammersmith. With all of that being said, one of the people on the armed patrols actually did just that. Unfortunately, it wasn't the ghost of Hammersmith that he killed. This was blatantly a case of mistaken identity. An excise officer by the name of Francis Smith shot and killed a bricklayer. His name was Thomas Millwood. He shot this guy in cold blood. Smith truly believed he was shooting at the infamous ghost haunting this town. 
Thomas Millwood, the guy he shot, was dressed in white clothing, causing the 29-year-old Francis Smith to believe the guy was a ghost. Now, part of me feels sorry for the young officer. I mean, the entire town was walking on eggshells at night. They believed their area to be haunted by the Hammersmith ghost. They had armed patrols out hunting for the alleged ghost. This young man comes along and accidentally shoots a real, living, and breathing person, believing him to be the ghost that they were all looking for because he kind of happened to look like him. Was the town's paranoia to blame for this mistaken belief? Was all of the hype and motivation behind the hunts for the ghost to blame for this tragedy? In the end, none of that even mattered. None of it mattered. Francis Smith stood trial for the murder of Thomas Millwood. He was tried for willful murder. Even though he tried to convince the jury that the murder was a result of mistaken belief, he was still sentenced to death for his crime. Again, the entire town believed that area to be haunted and formed a militia to hunt the paranormal down. Yet this guy joins them and accidentally kills Thomas Millwood because he thought he was the ghost. But in the end, none of that even mattered. Francis Smith stood trial for the murder of Thomas Millwood. He was tried for willful murder, just like I said. He was sentenced to death. Even the wife of the deceased gave a testimony in court. She claimed she told her husband to change his clothes with the town being on edge about the ghost. But this guy wore it anyway. It made him look like a ghost. And unfortunately to Francis Smith, it did. His wife was right, and in the end, Francis Smith thought this guy was a ghost. The jury said that Smith claiming that he thought Millwood to be a ghost was irrelevant. It was obvious the answer to the original question was answered by the court's ruling. Could a person be held liable for their actions? if they were the consequence of mistaken belief. And that is certainly the case here with Francis Smith. He mistook this guy as the ghost and shot him and killed him. But obviously in this case, mistaken belief held no ground in the courtroom. However, legally speaking, there wasn't anything set in stone or set up in the law books concerning such a thing. So how do you handle it? It wasn't until 1984 when the courts actually went back, revisited this case, revisited the debate, could a ghost be blamed in court, or in this case, mistaken belief? Could that be blamed? It was then written into law in 1984. However, the usage of your belief in court is left up to the opinion of the court or the jurors. If they feel your belief was not honestly held, it would be rejected. In other words, if they believe that you truly believed it, they would consider it. If they believed the defendant may have been genuinely laboring under it, the defendant could rely on it. Okay, If he was genuinely laboring under it, the defendant could rely on it. But if they didn't think he was generally believing that, they wouldn't even allow the testimony. So it's a tough call and ultimately up to what people want to believe. If you have a jury full of believers of the supernatural, you may find yourself being able to use a ghost as your plea. However, a jury full of non-believers would rule your belief an unreasonable one. It's honestly all politics, even back in the early 1800s. The ghost may in fact made you do it, but you better hope when it comes to the court of law, somebody believes you. The law, of course, is set up to be in favor of the courts because, as well, you know, we all know, it would be nearly impossible to prove anything revolving around the supernatural. So what do you think? I mean, what do you think about all this? This gentleman accidentally shoots and kills one of his colleagues because he believed him to be the ghost that the town was actually hunting for with the intent to kill. Yet this young man gets sentenced to death in trial. Now, I have to say there are two sides of this, okay? Two sides of this to me, anyway, all right? Because, frankly, I've got two sides of my opinion, all right? I, I know there is something out there. I, I've seen it. You know, a lot of you out there listening tonight, you've seen stuff that cannot be explained. You know it's real, okay? I've seen things out there beyond what we currently catalog in the science books, and I know you have, too. 
you know, as far as paranormal occurrences are concerned. I have seen the ghosts. You have too. I have lived hauntings. You have too. I have seen phenomena that has no explanation, and you have too. It literally is what it is. But on the flip side, I have seen phenomena that did have an explanation. But for those instances where nothing according to our human science could bring forth a credible explanation, well, you have no choice but to call it paranormal. You just can't call it paranormal in court. We just don't have the proper means or tools to truly put something in print and say, yes, this is real, ghosts exist, yet I know they do. You know they do. A lot of you out there listening, if you're listening to phenomenology, if you're listening to this show, 10 to 1, you have a belief in the supernatural. And I'm sure there's some skeptics that listen to this stuff for entertainment too, so um, you're kind of out of the conversation as far as my point here. So part of me would want to say yes. I would willingly hear out a person testifying and using a ghost in their defense. However, the other part of me knows how reality works, and without a preponderance of evidence to support your claim, the chance of being victorious is slim to none. Currently, as sad as it may seem, we have no concrete method of delivering evidence in favor of the supernatural. We want to tell ourselves we do. We want to believe that we do. We want to say that this electromagnetic field read proves there's a ghost, but it doesn't. Television would like to convince you that all of those ghost hunters running around in the dark with their tools from Lowe's and their bells and their whistles are presenting solid cases in favor of the existence of ghosts. But frankly, they're not. That's why we don't see a real, credible scientist backing your paranormal heroes, myself included. In other words, you may find the act of paranormal research in a future history book or novel, you know, concerning pop culture, but as it currently stands, you won't see it gracing science books. You won't see it gracing science books anytime soon. I mean, you are certainly not going to stand in a courtroom with your electromagnetic field tester and look at the judge and say, but there was a .70 on the Gauss scale, Your Honor. The judge is going to dismiss you immediately. That is just the reality of it. That is why DeFeo from Amityville went to prison, convicted of murder. That is why this guy, okay, with the case we're talking about now, went to prison for murder. There isn't a single method of paranormal research that cannot be recreated or manipulated to suit an agenda. Therefore, the days of using the paranormal in court, aside from the Christian Bible, is far from becoming a reality. That's just the truth. It certainly is a bit of a hypocrisy, though, when our court system actively uses religion as a part of their daily trials. They willingly use something that is yet to be proven, but they believe it. So... You're using the Bible because you believe it to be true, but you won't allow a, a victim or somebody on trial to use the paranormal because they believe it. The trials use the Bible and religion as a bonding contract, a bonding contract that you will in fact speak the truth or there will be biblical repercussions. They believe that, yet they hold no credence to an individual wishing to use it for their benefit. You know, maybe that person is telling the truth. Maybe they aren't. Either way, it would be nice to see it recognized. But how? You know, and of course with that, it would come, there, there would be a slew of charlatans. Any system, put into, any system put into place always has those trying to manipulate it, and it would happen, more so now than ever. These were cases that attempted to use a ghost as a defense in court, and, you know, by making it up or making a mistake. You know, the Hammersmith case, that was a case of mistaken identity. The guy really believed it. He made a mistake. The Amityville case, that was just a product of making it up, you know, so he wasn't convicted uh, of murder. But what would happen if a ghost really did manipulate your environment and place you in a situation where you were left holding the knife? You were, the, you were going to be the one to blame, but a ghost actually did it. You know, there has not been one documented case in which the supernatural was to blame that ended in favor of the defendant. Not one. So if our justice system doesn't believe it, and if our scientists don't believe it, why do we? That, of course, is a topic for another show, probably numerous shows. But what would you do? You know, think about that. What would you do?
Let's say you were in an accident that involved a true haunting and it resulted in somebody dying. What would you do? Would you bring what you believe to be the truth to the public eye, even if it meant ridicule and harsh justice thrown down on you? Or would you come up with something else knowing that the truth in that case would not set you free? You know, that, that there's lots to think about, guys. You know, what do you do? You put yourself out there if you tell the truth and say, yes, it was a haunting, it was a ghost. But you know there's no way to prove that. So do you just make something else up? What do you do? Either way, you are going to lose. With all of that being said, let me know what you think. Give me your thoughts. Shoot me your thoughts. Um, like the commercial said earlier, you can hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. That's Stephen spelled with a P-H. Or just send me an email at Stephen d lancaster at gmail.com Stephen with a ph d is in david lancaster at gmail.com i would love to hear what you guys think about this you know what do you think about criminal cases in the past that use the paranormal as a part of their defense and is there a way that you could effectively use it in the court of law think about all that stuff guys Hit me up, give me your thoughts, and I may bring it up in a future episode of Phenomenology. Let's take another quick break before we close this show out. I've got a few other cases to bring up to you that are head scratchers and eye openers. So stick around. Want to learn more about the supernatural and what it is like to walk between the realms of the living and the dead? Check out my novels on this subject for some interesting reading that will leave you questioning everything. Pick up my debut novel, Paranormal Investigator, True Case Files of a Paranormal Investigator, or dive deep into the dark world of haunted objects with my third book, Norman, The Doll That Needed to Be Locked Away. All of my books are available at Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, Amazon, and anywhere fine books are sold. You are listening to Phenomenology right here on the One Step Closer to Madness Network. All right, welcome back, my friends. You are listening to Phenomenology. I am your host, Stephen Lancaster. And tonight we are talking about cases, paranormal cases, leading to legal cases. So legal cases that involved a ghost. And what that means is a case where the defendant attempted to use the paranormal in their defense. So either the ghost or demon caused the murder or the ghost or demon caused them to do it. So tonight, the ghost made me do it. That's been the topic at hand uh, for the debut episode of Phenomenology. And uh, this leads me to think about a case from 1922. Now, this was a case a little more recent, uh, I guess within the past 100 years, almost 100 years, uh, where there was an element of the paranormal, and then, of course, there was murder. But the two never got put together in this case. So you had all these paranormal claims at this farm, and then you had a brutal, brutal murder take place, and nobody put the two together. And this case, still to this day, nearly 100 years later, is still unsolved. Um, the case is titled, The Hinterkaifeck Farm Case. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, Hinterkaifeck, but that's how we're going to say it. And it involved the entire Gruber family. Now, like I said, they lived on this farm. They were well-to-do, well-respected in the community. They, they were so good off, I guess, that they, they had a maid that handled things around the farmhouse. Well, she was the first one that kind of started uh, the paranormal claims at the Hinterkaifeck farm. Um, your stereotypical haunted house stuff. She heard voices, uh, doors opening and closing, footsteps, shadow figures, you know, the whole nine yards, everything you would expect. Um, from a haunted house. It bothered her so bad that she quit the job. She quit the job at the farm and uh, said she wouldn't be back because the place was haunted. Now, shortly after that, a few weeks after she had quit, um, the entire Gruber family was found murdered. Now, the events that led up to that are what's interesting. After she left, they hired a new maid, of course, but uh, the Gruber family, they started to experience the paranormal activity at their farm themselves. They would hear the footsteps. They would hear the doors opening and closing. They were seeing the shadow figures. And uh, a really interesting thing to note, um, the father, uh, this is something I find really intriguing, is the night of their murder, 
he had seen a set of footsteps coming from the woods. The farm, you know, was kind of surrounded by a forest, and he saw footsteps coming from the forest to the farm. So it was one-way ticket. It was one-way direction. Um, there weren't footsteps going back, so it wasn't like it was a family member who left the farm to go to the forest for one one reason or another and then came back. You know, there'd be two sets of footprints coming and going. These footprints were only going. Now, considering the entire family was murdered that night, I don't know how anybody knows this detail, um, but it's in the case file, nonetheless. So you had a trail of footprints on the night that they were murdered coming from the forest to their farmhouse. Okay. That night, the family, the, the paranormal activity allegedly at the farmhouse hit its apex. You know, doors opening and closing, cabinets, drawers opening and closing. Uh, allegedly, according to the new maid, lots of footsteps coming from the attic again, which is the same thing the original maid had claimed. Um, now, the night of the murder, the bodies were discovered in their barn. And they were stacked up nice and neat on top of each other and covered in hay. Um, but not the entire Gruber family was actually killed in the barn. The youngest son was found dead in his bed and he was actually covered in his mother's dress. Which is kind of weird, weird uh, detail to add there. And the new maid was also killed in her bed and she was covered in bed sheets. Um, what's interesting from a psychological standpoint is that would mean that the killer or... Uh, whether it be a human or a ghost, felt some some level of remorse. You know, they covered the the bodies in the in the farm with hay. They covered the youngest son in the house um, with his mother's dress, and then they covered the new maid in bed sheets. And typically, when that's done, that means there's a level of uh, remorse involved. Now, there was, of course, I mean, we're talking six people brutally murdered, and, and they were killed with a pickaxe. All of them, even the children. Everybody was killed with a pickaxe. So, of course, this involved the police. But in the official case file, the paranormal was never mentioned um, as far as being the reason. Um, the locals and, and all the testimonies that, that were given about the Hinterkaifeck farm was it was haunted, but it was never said, oh, it must have been the ghost that killed this entire family. So the police department did their investigation. They, they pretty much decided that, I guess, by the footsteps in the snow, I'm not sure how they determined it, but it is believed that each family member was tricked into going out to the barn like they were, they were, lured, out, they were lured out there um, and then killed one at a time with this pickaxe. And I guess the youngest son never came out and the new maid never came out of the house. So the killer... Um, whether it be a flesh and blood killer or a ghost, um, went back to the house, then killed the son and killed the, the new maid. So it's interesting that we're nearly 100 years after this. You know, it happened in 1922. There were paranormal claims on the farm, um, so bad that even the first maid quit her job. Um, and then this family's found brutally murdered, yet nobody even attempted to put it together. The police still believe it was a flesh and blood killer, while, you know, a lot of the locals believed it was a force from beyond the grave. But here we are, like I said, nearly 100 years later, and that case is still unsolved. So to me, that's a case that's intriguing enough to consider that, okay, the police weren't able to pinpoint a killer. Um, obviously, they don't have the techniques we have now as far as forensics is concerned. But you had the one-way footprints, the, the one-directional footprints going to the farm and never leaving, coming from the woods. And I believe that's, that's kind of what I gather here from the case file, that the police are the ones who reported that. So they, the footprints were seen, so somebody came to that farm and never left, at least not while there was snow on the ground or at least during this investigation. So that's something to consider. Was it a ghost? But... In relation to tonight's topic, the ghost made me do it. This is one of those things where here we are with another case of an entire family being murdered and there were the echoes, the rumors of a ghost. So I thought that was an interesting case. Probably one you've never heard of. It's not like Amityville or The Haunting in Connecticut or anything like that. Although this would make a, a really good uh, novel or movie. I'm surprised somebody hasn't 
um, attempted to do that. It's such an interesting story, especially considering it's unsolved still to this day. That that would leave everything up for interpretation. You know, could it have been the ghost? Could it have been a, a family member, a disgruntled family member? Uh, who knows? There's so much uh, to be left, you know, up for interpretation. But with that being said, let's take our final break of the evening. We'll come back. I got one final segment planned for you. And then we'll call this debut episode of Phenomenology History. So stick around. Hey, my friends, be sure to like the One Step Closer to Madness Network with my show, Phenomenology, at facebook.com slash one step closer to madness. That's facebook.com slash one step closer to madness. Do you have a topic or a question that you would like to hear on a future episode of Phenomenology? Hit me up at facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. That's facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. Give me your suggestions. Give me your comments. Give me your questions. You may just hear it on a future episode of Phenomenology. Facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. We now return to Phenomenology with author and phenomenologist Stephen Lancaster right here on the One Step Closer to Madness Network. All right, my friends, welcome back to Phenomenology. We have rounded the corner. We are in the final segment of the show. I am your host, Stephen Lancaster, and tonight we have discussed using a ghost as your defense in court. And uh, using the examples that we talked about earlier, obviously it's not as easy as it seems. So moving on here, I wanted to point out a few other notable cases, more recent cases, actually, um, that try to use the supernatural as a part of their defense. Um, now this first one wasn't actually recent. It was uh, seven years after the death of Mark Twain. We all know who Mark Twain is, and this one, this this is kind of ridiculous. I can't even believe it made it to the court process. But a medium claimed that Mark Twain wrote a novel after his death by communicating its contents through a Ouija board. Okay, so Mark Twain is dead. A medium is using a Ouija board and claims that Mark Twain, word for word, wrote his next novel to the medium across the Ouija board. Now, this happened in 1917, a little over 100 years um, after one of the cases we were talking about earlier. She claimed Mark Twain himself read her the contents of his previously unreleased work through spirit communication across a Ouija board. Of course, this landed serious legal trouble. We were talking about a very popular author then, and of course, uh, an extremely popular author now. He's gone down in history as one of the best. And this medium was going to attempt to release a new book under Mark Twain's name, claiming that he told her to write it through the Ouija board. Of course, like I said, it landed in the legal trouble. The medium did not get the uh, alleged book published under the famed author's name. In fact, the book never saw the publishing at all. Uh, the next one is, is a little more modern. We've all heard about the Conjuring movies and the Warrens, and that's another whole show, too, in general. But um, another author um, who had wrote the book on the Conjuring, Jared Brittle, attempted to sue Warner Brothers over the Conjuring movie franchise in 2016. So just a couple years ago. She had previously written a book on the alleged haunting that, of course, Warner Brothers capitalized on in the Conjuring movies. Warner Brothers claimed that the movies were based on historical facts, whereas Miss Biddle, author Jared Brittle, claimed the stories were taken directly from her book, which is the truth. Those stories were taken from her book. However, Needless to say, in court, Miss Brittle demanded that Warner Brothers prove their historical facts by proving that ghosts do, in fact, exist. So, Warner Brothers was trying to say that they made the Conjuring movies based on historical facts. Well, in order to say that, 
you also have to subscribe to the belief that ghosts are real, if it's a historical fact. But, of course, Warner Brothers was unable to prove the existence of ghosts, and the whole thing was thrown out. Just a silly, silly case, once again, attempting to use a ghost uh, to win. And now, before I mention this number one case, uh, as I was researching the internet, recall how I mentioned earlier that our court system only uses the supernatural when it benefits their agenda, like the usage of the Christian Bible. Now, this one I found interesting, okay? And I think we've all heard about this to a degree. You know, when somebody's selling a house, um, it's pretty much law now that you have to divulge the truth. You know, you have to... Um, say, if you believe it's haunted, you actually have to tell a prospective buyer that. Well, that all started with an infamous case known as the Stramboski versus Ackley case. And it placed into effect a housing law for real estate. Okay, the law states that a house in which the owner had previously stated and made public its haunted history legally was haunted when it came to the matter of resale. The house would have to be advertised as legally haunted for the purpose of an action for rescission brought by a subsequent purchaser. So here we go again with the court system contradicting themselves. They're okay with using the Bible, so using the supernatural when it caters to them. They're okay in real estate creating a law and calling a house legally haunted so the person buying it knows the history of it. Now, we've all heard that, you know, if somebody died in the house, that they have to tell you that as well. You know, that's something that, yeah, I think everybody would want to know. But to actually say it's legally haunted, there again, our court system using something that benefits them. So, in other words, thanks to the Strambovsky and Ackley case, in other words, if I claim my house is haunted and put it on the market for sale, the real estate agency must inform any and all potential buyers of its haunted history. This is law, and it's considered legally haunted when you do that. There again, we see our justice system using a ghost in their favor. But when it comes to the average Joe using it, forget about it. Your claims will be easily dismissed and disregarded, as all the cases we've discussed tonight have proven to you. Look, guys, I want to thank you for tuning in to the debut episode of my brand new podcast, Phenomenology, right here on the Madness Network, One Step Closer to Madness. I don't know. Are you one step closer to madness now that you've listened to this? You might be one step close to boredom. I don't know. I find this stuff interesting. Again, the goal of my show, Phenomenology, is to make you think about things you otherwise wouldn't even consider or even think about. I mean... Before you listen to this show, would you have, you know, given a second thought to Amityville, knowing that he originally attempted to blame a mob for killing his family? You know, would you, what about the other case, the case over in London? You know, would you have considered any of that? The whole town thought it was a ghost. And this poor kid did too, and accidentally shot a person, but he was found a murderer. He was convicted. So, it's a lot to think about. Again, I'm Stephen Lancaster. Check out my books if you want to learn more. I'm going to try to do this podcast weekly on the One Step Closer to Madness Network. As always, my friends, I'm very accessible. As the commercials have said earlier, hit me up at facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. And I spell Stephen with a P-H. Facebook.com slash author Stephen Lancaster. Like my page. Like the network's page. It's easy to find too, facebook.com slash one step closer to madness. Shoot me your questions or even topic suggestions for this podcast. All emails and comments that come through my author page on Facebook do get recognized. I, I may be slow on the take sometimes because of what's going on a particular day, but I do read everything. Okay, so thanks again, guys. You were listening to Phenomenology with your host, Stephen Lancaster. Until next time, have a great night.
Want to learn more about the supernatural and what it is like to walk between the realms of the living and the dead? Check out my novels on this subject for some interesting reading that will leave you questioning everything. Pick up my debut novel, Paranormal Investigator, True Case Files of a Paranormal Investigator, or dive deep into the dark world of haunted objects with my third book, Norman, The Doll That Needed to Be Locked Away. All of my books are available at Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, Amazon, and anywhere fine books are sold. You are listening to Phenomenology right here on the One Step Closer to Madness Network.